Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay. Everyone get settled. So a few uh, seats. If one, anyone wants to move up, uh, a few empty seats right over here. If you want, please move up if you if you want. <coughs> so. Um, First, it's a real pleasure to uh, to share stage with with Kevin. Uh, we go back a long ways. Well, you know, fairly long ways. We sat the three month course together in 1981. I knew who you were, but you didn't know who I was. Oh, well, I, I've since gotten to know you <laughs> very well, and and really respect uh, what you do, what, what Kevin brings to. Uh, to the community and to the Dharma, um, besides writing these uh, two books on uh, recovery and uh, and Dharma and Dharma practice, uh, one breath at a time and a burning desire, um, which has, have really uh, been very important and helpful for people in recovery, kind of putting uh, putting practice Buddhist. Uh, teachings and recovery uh, together. Um, Kevin was in the Community Dharma Leader Program uh, and uh, since uh, teaches all around uh, the U.S., Canada, abroad, um, and uh, leads a sitting group here in uh, in Berkeley on Wednesday nights. With Wes Nisker, we've been alternating, Uh yeah. So Wes and, and you're at uh, Yoga Kula? At yoga Kula, which is on Shattuck at Virginia. It's a beautiful yoga studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what time on 7.30 Wednesday? to 9. Mm-hmm. 7.30 to 9, Wednesdays, Wes and, and Kevin alternating. Um, yeah, and has uh, been exploring, working with uh, the heart and with emotions for many years now. Mm-hmm. So he got a chance <laughs> to... Uh, uh, to help create a, a, a forum. He and, and Barbara uh, did a beautiful job uh, looking at all these different aspects of emotions and how, <clears throat> how practice addresses or maybe doesn't address uh, the, um, the complex human heart uh, in our contemporary times. So, um, let's see. Maybe I'll just... If you want to say a few words about having put the issue together and uh, as we jump yeah. in. Yeah. Well, thanks for letting me come. Uh, I invited myself, so it's nice to have a friend who lets me come and talk. I, I, I wanted to talk about this because Inquiring Mind is such a special journal, and I know James uh, often uses it as a jumping-off point for Dharma talks and for discussion in the community, and since I was involved with it, I thought it would be nice to be able to come and talk about it. 
Um, and yeah, the, I, this is the second time I guest edited an issue. The last time was a couple of years ago where we did one on addiction, my other favorite topic. And, um, and I, it struck me today a little bit when we were on the phone that kind of, you know, you're, you're all about awakening joy and I'm over here talking about getting depressed. And, uh, <laughs> but we're really trying to meet in the middle somewhere, I think, you know. <laughs> we're both trying to get to the same place. I, I am going to be leading a training on old age sickness and death. Oh, so, excellent, uh, yes. Just to, so <laughs> uh, I alley. can bring you down as well <laughs> as anybody. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Good, yes. Well, I'd like to say I can it's... turn lemonade into lemons. <laughs> so that's you know, much more difficult than the other way around. You know. It's a real talent. So, um, so the, one of the th- interesting things about Inquiring Mind, I think, um, is that for each issue, the editors to get together and decide on a topic to explore. And then they kind of reach out to people that they think would be good contributors, people to interview, people who could offer a, an article. And so it's kind of generated in a way, I'm not sure other magazines do it that way. Um, it's not just kind of people submitting articles. It's more kind of generated from the inside. And I think that creates um, more of an integrated, each issue has more of an integrated sense uh, than a typical magazine where you're just kind of reading random, you know, a typical Buddhist magazine might cover a whole bunch of different topics. Um, so, so that's what I think is special about it, and it's what's exciting about working on an issue is that you kind of get to dig in deep. And uh, a woman who just was talking to Barbara and me was talking about how we seem to touch so many bases, and that's we really were consciously going, okay, well, we want to cover this and we want to cover that, and then and then there were things that just arose, which is also the exciting part. Is kind of somebody I was actually just talking with Alan Sanaki one day about music and and somehow this uh, came up and he, he wrote what I think is really the most uh, elegant and beautifully written piece in here um, something that kind of came in and there wasn't much editing to do on it he's a, he's a real artist and and it's a powerful and and uh, in some ways disturbing piece I think a hard one for people and probably hard for him and what was it about? about about his own struggles with depression and um, and coming out as a Zen teacher and and like uh, like me, somebody who's been practicing for many decades and yet still has some struggles and sort of hasn't um, you know, still have those questions about well wh- what what is the role of my practice in in um, overcoming these kind of lifetime seemingly lifelong. Uh, recurrences of challenging emotions and um, you know and he talks about having tried many different approaches and kind of coming to a certain acceptance which I think is also something some part of our practice is that acceptance and that equanimity around sickness old age and death and depression you know I mean that sometimes we because I actually think of depression now as a as an illness more than more than uh an emotional state, but that's <laughs> a very, you know, complicated question. I think that we also, 
I think the the discussion of using antidepressants in practice and and their role and the potential for them was a really interesting one. Sylvia Borstein is very clear that she feels that people can get um, a real uh, boost, and not not a high, but in their practice by kind of being able to release some of those really uh, challenging uh, anxieties and depressions that get in the way of actually experiencing the insights of the Dharma. And uh, because sometimes we, there's a tendency to kind of be trying to just use meditation as a palliative in a way. And, and um, that, that's great. Only it kind of doesn't, allow for the going beyond that that personal view of just taking care of me and my feelings and my story and being able to move more into these more impersonal teachings. Um, and there were other viewpoints. Right, and there were definitely Silver. other viewpoints. Alan Wallace has a very, uh, <laughs> very clearly stated position in opposition um, and we've, I think we got some letters about that, didn't we? Some, some real, so maybe we'll be seeing some of the response in the next issue. But, um, you know, I, I would say that also something that I admire about Barbara is that she really has a, a willingness to, to take in, if, if someone has a strongly held position that they can argue, whether she agrees with it or not, she she will publish it, you know. And that's a place where over there were some places where she and I disagreed on that. And and um, you know, I, I, again, that's something that makes the the journal interesting because it's not sort of taking editorial stance. You know, we're we're just the you know going to take this one position and try to promote that. There's really the debate, which make, makes gives the reader the opportunity to you know think about where they stand and, and sort of recognizes the intelligence of the reader rather than trying to guide everybody into one belief system. Mm-hmm. Which also is, uh, is one of the, the main uh, riches of Buddha Dharma that there's so many different ex- explorations and uh, perspectives on practice and on the truth and what the Buddha said or what the Buddha didn't say and is it is it supposed to be just traditional or is it contemporary and adaptive and um, and so this is this is part of the the lineage and the tradition of Dharma combat in in Tibetan practice where you you're you're taught to kind of put down your argument and even there's a whole form of how you stamp your feet and as you win your argument in uh, in high Dharma combat. Uh, Although the mind doesn't get into heavy-duty combat, but it it does stimulate a lot of thinking about uh, about topics that makes the reader have to explore for themselves what's true, which is what the Buddha said in uh, the Kalama Sutta. Yeah. Yeah. So. I guess the, the other piece that I really enjoyed in this issue was... Um, Working with the questions around uh, trauma and the, the two issue, the two articles that I was most involved in probably were this one by Stephanie Tate, um, who talks about 
her really, it's a pretty disturbing uh, experiences as, as growing up and even as an adult. And, um, and then the article by Dave Smith, who also went through some really rough things as a, as a teenager. And, and what was interesting, and both of them kind of, I know them both from Noah Levine, and, and so they're both a little younger, because it's one of the things Barbara was asking if we could find some younger writers. And uh, both of them kind of come through a little bit of that Dharma punk uh, world. And, and what's beautiful to me is that both of them, and their articles were completely written completely independently, but both of them kind of took on compassion and loving kindness practice as the core healings after a lot of years of working both with 12 step and with and even do, doing dharma practice but sort of something was missing and and for both of them it was really the the metta practice that that seemed to be the the final piece that helped them to heal and so i, re, I re love their stories because of course they also have this kind of redemptive uh, quality into mm -hmm. them, so I'll say. I guess the last one I'll talk about, and 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 really, what I was hoping is that people here would just have read some of this, or just just by hearing my summary, have questions, and so we'll, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. But working with Biku Bodhi was really a thrill for me because he's one of my heroes, and actually he was at that three-month retreat for a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. and I was the person who got to serve him food, which I think is really why I got to be here at all. I think the good karma that I got from those feeding him was really solved a lot of my problems over the years. Mm -hmm. but, he was my next-door neighbor uh, really? in, the, in the retreat out of the annex. Um, so, and what about the so, Cody's? So it was really interesting to... You know, he provides a, each issue, he provides an article from a, you know, kind of the, out of the Pali canon and kind of the ter traditional Theravadan viewpoint. And I wrote to him and said, you know, we, this is the issue is on working with difficult emotions. And I said, it's, it seems though, from my limited reading in the Pali canon, that Mostly when the Buddha talks about difficult emotions, he's talking about sickness, old age, and death, about sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, which is mostly about loss and impermanence. But it, it doesn't seem like there's references to uh, our contemporary <laughs> problems, you know, that we go to our shrinks for. And... Uh, like so, what, loneliness or... It, yeah. Uh, Self-judgment. Right. All, all the things that Dharma teachers run into on retreats and therapists deal with. And, and the sort of, yeah, I mean, the alienation of our cult, in our culture and all the ways that people struggle. Although we, there was certainly addiction, but he doesn't, I don't really read that in there either. Interestingly, though, of course, the cause of suffering, tanha, is thirst. So alcoholics get that, you know, it's... Definitely, that was our problem. <laughs> but so I was a little tentative putting this out to Bhikkhu Bodhi because, you know, to sort of make a, a claim out of my understanding of the, the Pali Ken, I was like, I hope he's not going to tell me I'm wrong, you know. And he actually agreed with me. And so, but it was, I think it was really interesting what he decided to do. Because I said, well, we, maybe you could write about 
you know, sickness, old age, and death, or sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And he came back and said, I'm going to do something different. And what he did was he talked about people having enlightenment experiences out of kind of traumatic events in their lives. And that, it, for me, is very intriguing. And I was thinking today about the modern versions we have of that, because if you've read Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now, his description in the beginning of that book is very much that type of experience where he didn't really have a, doesn't seem to have had a lot of background in Dharma or anything, but one night he just went through this kind of dark night of the soul and and suddenly was confronted with the the um, illogic of his own thoughts, saying something like, I hate myself. or I can't stand myself anymore. Yeah, I can't stand myself anymore. And realizing, wait, who's talking to whom? And, and he kind of had this breakthrough, which kind of disrupted his whole psyche and took him quite a while to integrate. But, uh, you know, it was, it was like that. It wasn't the gradual path that we hear about. And the other one that I thought of was, Ramana Maharshi, wasn't he like 12 or something? 17. 17, okay. I'm great with dates. And, and was just went through this uh, death experience. Mm-hmm. Just, his, uh, his uncle died, and, uh, and he went to the... He couldn't quite put it together and was up in his attic and uh, uh, hiding underneath, uh, afraid of death, trying to hide from death. Yeah and went completely to the deepest, darkest places that the mind could go to until he realized what doesn't die and had an awakening experience that night that changed him forever. It took him a number of years to kind of be grounded on planet Earth, and his nails were growing long, and his he wasn't really taking care of himself for for a few years. Actually, uh, he went to the mountain in uh, uh, Arunach, Arunachala, uh, but then he kind of integrated it and was this beatific, awakened being after going through the darkest places in the mind and woke up. And as I was reflecting on that. Today I thought, well, those are powerful images, but they can seem kind of distant, like either I'm not going to go through that or I hope I don't go through that. (laughs) But then it occurred to me that essentially those are kind of insights into the first noble truth. They're they're the awakenings that happen when we see suffering. and It's not always so dramatic. And in fact, for people like alcoholics and addicts who get sober, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, it's a spiritual awakening. It's not so transformative, but it changes your life. And, and I think many of us have experiences like that that, uh, that bring us to the Dharma and, and, that, uh, and, and in our Dharma practice where we hit a wall and it can really seem like we're not getting anywhere and then, and then something opens up. Um, so that was important for me in a way to think about that today because the, the article I thought... It's really, it's one of those dramatic, wow, in the old times, these crazy things happened. But for me, it's really important that I can see them as in my own life and, and the relevance of them in, in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and just uh, as an aside, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, if you aren't familiar, is, is the, um, probably the most respected translator of, um, of 
Theravadan Buddhist uh, discourses in, in the Pali Canon has all these thick translations. He's, he's really, he's written the, the main references for contemporary culture. Uh, he's been here before. Actually, he's going to be here in April. I think uh, April 4th, uh, he'll be coming through town and uh, he'll be here on the Thursday night. But um, yeah, he's pretty special and yeah. to know somebody like that and say, well, what do you think the Buddha said? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear thoughts or questions, either people who have read some of the articles or, um, or just, as I said, the summary, uh, any of these issues. Uh, again, I just, you know, for me, I, the, the Dharma practice has been, this has been a really important part of my Dharma practice. And a lot of times, just when I'm sitting, I'm trying to sit with whatever feelings are in my body. Um, so it's really, for me, a gateway mm-hmm. into, into, into both calm and into insight. Uh, so really valuable for me. Mm-hmm. There is a, a couple of things. Yeah. First of all, I'm curious if, if Barbara, if you have anything to yeah. say about, about the issue from your own perspective. Um, and uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but any kind of reflections? Uh, do we, where's, the, uh, where's the other... Oh, thanks, Andrew. And um, and also, as as we're waiting to hear from from Barbara, anything that she has to say, just uh, looking at how emotions, how you how you found the practice either addressing or not addressing emotions in your own practice. Sometimes, as as Kevin says, it can be the 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 doorway to a greater understanding and awakening, and stretches us and shakes us up out of our complacency. And sometimes it seems that, uh, gosh, I've been practicing for a while and I just don't seem to know what to do with this particular thing, anger or sadness or loneliness or, you know, practice doesn't seem to touch it. And then other ways that it does, you know, so maybe we can explore a little bit about your own relationship to emotions and, and practice. So first, Barbara, anything you say? Put it right next to your lips so we can hear you. Well, I, I love working on the issue with Kevin. Okay. Yeah, I love working on the issue with Kevin again. And um, uh, I see my role often in designing an issue in getting a counterpoint between different perspectives. And when, you know, uh, when... I sometimes, you know, Kevin pointed out that we sometimes uh, occasionally disagreed because <laughs> he wanted all of the articles to represent how he understood Dharma. And I realized that I don't know if I ever agree with any article that's in Inquiring Mind, and I've been working on it since the beginning. Even my own, you know. I'm, you don't yeah. agree with yourself? <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a Republican uh, guy in Congress who just filibustered himself. Uh, like, uh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and so I, I, I was particularly interested in the, um, you know, in editing and working on the, the counterpoint between Sylvia Borstein and Alan Wallace and then having... The other article was a, a by a um, uh, well a psychopharmacologist woman who who is 
uh, married to a, a professor, a neuroscience professor at Cal, and they wrote about, you know, just the science of antidepressants, um, and they're both practicing Buddhists as well. And I just loved having that combination. And then, I, you know, I, I would be very interested in hearing what you all have to, you know, if anybody has any uh, reactions or responses to, to, to that counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Uh, How many people have looked at some of the issue? I'm curious. Oh, good. I've, I've been promoting it, and I said, in two weeks, we're going to have Kevin here. We're going to look at it. So, very good. I'm very... Yeah. Good students. I'm very <laughs> grateful. Yeah. yeah. Good. So, that's so, Yeah, thank you. So, what, anything that came up from it? Yeah. Uh, all the way in the back. Thanks, Andrew. Our film... Oh, wait, hang on. Wait, wait for the mic, because it's going to be taped. Put it right next to your mouth, too. Yeah. I've only read the title. Um, <laughs> that's plenty. It's uh, enough. Working with difficult emotions. But Uh-oh. even the title kind of implies something to be fixed. And, mm-hmm. and I, I like think for myself it's more like embracing the difficult feelings mm-hmm. or pain. So, like, when there's part of me that's hurting, if I can really embrace it, and it might even be like a physical holding of myself, mm-hmm. uh, bringing loving attention, you know, that's, anyway, that's a big part yeah. of my working with those kind of feelings. Um, and there was something else I was going to say, but... Uh, oh, and the... When it comes to practice, I mean, certainly mindfulness, you know, helps listening to what's going on, you know, getting messages from it and, you know, bringing caring attention to it. But the, often as I, you know, if in day longs or different practices, there's a certain distance from it, from the feelings. There's feeling them but not exactly embracing them. Like meta is sort of good wishes toward them. But I, I sometimes wonder if there's a way to bring in a more caring, active uh, relationship mm-hmm. to the feelings. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you sometimes get the sense that bringing awareness to an emotion, you're, you're not really diving into it. There's a kind of uh, space or separation um, as far as getting into the texture of it? or Yeah, well, uh, I... Yeah, definitely. You know, mindfulness, I see, feel the benefit of oh, that, question. but it's not as, as <laughs> active of embracing of it as I've sometimes found helpful. Mm. You know, it's not as quite as active yeah. in being caring and loving toward... No, I think, that, I think, there, yeah, I think yeah. there, that is kind of two different ways that you can kind of practice. The one is more the observing, kind of noting while I'm having this feeling and sort of knowing it but not connecting with the visceral experience and the other is really kind of going into the body and 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 not trying to even identify verbally or cognitively the the name of what's happening but just to to know it through the body um there's a beautiful sidebar in here from ajahn amaro which comes out of his book silent rain it's something that I've used for years that I read to people. And it's about how to do this very thing, to, to come into the body and to get away from the, the brain trying to figure out the emotions 
and and just talks about breathing and and seeing how we create the tension in the body even when the thought has passed that it kind of stays stuck there and that that's one that i really recommend people look at and and try practicing with mm-hmm. but one thing that you're saying um bears going into a little bit more and that is um, it's true that even in getting into the texture of the feeling or holding it with with compassion but going right into the experience of it you get close sometimes you even get closer than just as you're spinning your thoughts about it however the way I see it, when you add the element of awareness to the experience, you're, you're not lost, which and it's, uh, Sylvia has this image of in a thunderstorm, if you, there's just even a, a shaft of sunlight, one little shaft of sunlight in the middle of a storm, it changes everything, right? Oh, there's the light, and there's, there's a little bit of space. And so the feeling of being lost is often what we associate with really diving into the emotion. And if there's awareness, even if we're really getting into the texture of it and, and, and hurting there's a place that's knowing, oh, hurting is happening now. And to some extent, that might seem not as, certainly not as intense, or, but not as swimming in the emotion. Whether or not that's useful or something that you value, you know, different people can have different takes on it it seems to me that in in that awareness of it just even bringing that element of awareness that the gift is you're not identified with the emotion so that it's it's not completely you which changes everything but is a different feeling from being swept up in the emotion so there there's something to what yeah. you're saying Uh, Jen, right over here. Yeah, raise your hand. Um, so I actually wanted to uh, read something from a Reggie Ray book that has really, I feel like, is sort of a, has informed my understanding and it's kind of worked on me and and I, I, I think it's important. Mm-hmm. This is Reggie Ray, what, Touching Enlightenment? Or, yeah. And, and turn it on an angle. That's it. Okay, so he says, It appears to be true that emotions seem especially overwhelming and frightening for us modern people because of our overly disembodied and individualistic and personalistic understanding of them. In other cultures, emotions are often understood within a much larger, less individualistic context. For example, Maladoma Somme speaks of emotions within a different, more transcendent frame of reference. Maladoma says that when someone in his village is taken over by a strong emotion, the entire village attends to that person. 
The reason is that for the Dagara people of Maladoma's homeland, strong emotion is never about just one person alone, but rather about the village community itself. In his or her highly charged emotional state, a certain person is understood to be giving birth to something that the entire village needs to know and needs to address. And I think that the fact that we in our modern culture struggle with depression and addiction to the degree that we do has much more to do with the state of our culture and, and what has happened to real community. Um, and I think, you know, that's something to kind of work with. You can't really fix that. Um, but I think having that understanding takes the ownership away from the emotion and gives it a context and over time, for me, that's really helped me to um, to not, you know, not taking it personally. That's a kind of a not-self thing. This is an emotion. I get to see where it comes from. Um, and, and then that understanding is very, uh, informs my practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and and the, the the idea also of refuge in sangha, where you're not feeling an alienation and disconnection, where we're all, all going through this together, and certainly when we're affected by something, say a a, a disaster or a, a, an event, where everybody is going through something as a response to that, there's a different kind of a feeling when you're part of a, a greater energy field than when you feel, oh gosh, I'm all alone here. Nobody can understand. And one of the Tibetan practices, a beautiful practice, is to reflect on when you're going through something, whether it's the loss of a loved one or your kid has gotten into trouble or whatever it is, you think of all the people in the world who are going through what you're going through. And in, in a moment, that sense of separation and disconnection and pain and deep hurt becomes a doorway to compassion where you feel connected with everybody else. It's just amazing how one little flip of perspective can, can help you open to the universal truth of suffering in a way that that touches the heart and opens it. And and I think on the flip side, um, understanding that when someone is struggling with a lot of difficulty, having that understanding um, for that person and not making it about them is an incredible gift to give to another person who's having a difficult time. Let's see if I can figure out how to articulate this question. It's about um, neuroplasticity <coughs> and addiction uh, and self or not self. And um, at a neurological level, I guess, um, does becoming addicted permanently alter 
brain structure. I mean, if the brain is plastic, presumably when one uses one's brain gets shifted. But when one stops, is it, can it be plasticized backwards to where it was pre-addiction? Or is sort of the addictive personality the addictive personality before the addiction and after the addiction, and the addiction is just sort of a, a phase that it goes through and all the, all the issues that recovering addicts deal with would have been there whether or not they went through the addiction. <laughs> I don't know about the brain, really. I mean, I read Buddha's brain, but that's about as far. You know, I, I can't speak. I don't know about the brain chemistry with addiction. I can talk about the personalities and behaviors more, which do seem to be, fall into patterns that many people who are in recovery find that they still have a tendency to um, get caught up in, you know, if it's not, maybe they've stopped the major things, but now, you know, drugs and alcohol, maybe now it's food or sex or um, TV or, you know, but it's, it, that's, it's really anecdotal, the evidence on that. But that, that's, I would say that's the the sort of uh, received wisdom in the 12-step world, that, that it's kind of people have addictive personalities. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But then I want to ask you, so there might be a substitution of this for that or realizing that you have that propensity. What about um, moving through it to the point where you are not uh, you're not under that power, uh, or where you're, you, you've, you've opened to a whole other perspective where, where you are not obstructing all the, the wisdom and the love and the goodness. You know? So what happens then? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it's so hard. It's hard, hard to talk about because it it's so personal, and it's also really hard to know from the inside, you know, what's normal. In other words, there's sort of a, a sense, I think, for many of us as addicts that, that we have a stronger desire system or something, you know, that, that we're more driven or in some, you know, more obsessive. Mm-hmm. But that's so subjective that I don't actually trust that, even that, Interpretation. Mm-hmm. I I certainly certainly think that um, there you know the step twelve says we've had a spiritual awakening and I I absolutely think that when someone really goes through the the fullness of recovery that uh, the things like those addictive tendencies don't have much power anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, mm-hmm. I, I, is that? I'm not sure you're asking that. Right? Well, it just you know, uh, Jim. Jim asked yeah. about. Um, yeah, yeah. Is there a no, I do change? think. Yeah. I do think that for many people, it becomes really. It really falls away at a certain point. But I think that there's a pretty long process. I think that's for many, probably it takes ten years for most people in recovery to get to starting to be in that place. Mm-hmm. But also, um, just what I've seen, depending upon how much abuse there was, there can be damage, irreversible damage to the brain or the system. 
And so that, that, that can be a limiting factor. Uh, but then if there's not, if there's, if, if there's a regenerative possibility, you know, the Four Noble Truths are about desire and the end of desire. So it's just been a more, a more focused and intense crucible, but all of this is about how to work with desire. <clears throat> that's the yeah. noble truth. And that's certainly one of the reasons why I think people in recovery really get Buddhism, <laughs> you know, why it's so powerful, because it's not theoretical at all. You know, it's so, so much their lived experience. So I know you've had your hand up for a while. Uh, yeah, and I just want to answer that question about the science and the brain. Uh, there is a lot of science that has followed uh, people who were active addicts into recovery, and they were taking images of their brain over a course of a five-year period, and, and uh, the brain structure has changed a lot as uh, people have stopped drinking or using drugs or whatever they were doing. Uh, for some people who really caused huge damage to, them, to, the, to their brain, uh, there is some damage that is permanent that yeah. has not been repaired. But I think the peripheral parts of the brain, uh, for the most part, recovers as, uh, as the recovering addicts you know, get into recovery. I, I read the articles on depression online, so I'm, I'm glad that you put them online at least. And um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really a dialogue between um, you know, modern science and ancient wisdom about what really works and what doesn't work. I think one of my teachers always says, if, if it works for you, it's nobody else's business. And, um, and that's really the bottom line. Um, and I think it is really a question of capacity. Um, Ten years ago, when I experienced loss, uh, my life was incredibly unmanageable. And I didn't know how to deal with the difficult emotions. And I went to see a professional, and he said, you should take antidepressants. And I'm glad I did, and I did for one year, because that's what I needed. I didn't have the capacity to deal with what I was going through. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm dealing with a different kind of loss, greater than I dealt with 10 years ago. And I am able to, I have a greater capacity to, to manage. Mm-hmm. And simply the answer, which is step one in 12 steps, I have become more comfortable with the powerlessness uh, around me. And I acknowledge that I'm really powerless over everything. <laughs> and there is a deep level of acceptance around what's happening. This capacity I did not have 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So now I'm able to weather the challenges of my life and I feel my feelings and sit with them. And I don't have to pick up a drink or take antidepressants mm-hmm. because I have a capacity now and I have a community that's supporting me. And I think that's a perspective not to be lost in a discussion about antidepressants, let alone that we really don't know much about depression from a scientific point of view. It's a really a science in progress. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I had a uh, minor operation recently and was talking to the doctor afterwards about the recovery period. And I said to him, you know, how long will it be from, well, before I can just kind of leave, can I just walk out of the hospital? And he said, well, it's different for people of different ages. And, of course, what I thought immediately was, okay, young people recover more quickly, older people, we probably, it's harder. For, he said, young people, after a procedure like this, they'll stay in bed for a week. People who are more middle-aged, 
they'll be up and around in a day or two. Somebody who's 80, they'll just walk right up. Okay. <laughs> I said, what's that about? He said, well, older people, uh, they're more used to experiencing pain, in their li- and they just they learn to handle it. Young people kind of like, oh, my God. It hurt. And, <laughs> you know, and I thought about like a baby. You know, a baby can't tolerate kind of any level of pain. They just start to scream as soon as there's any level of discomfort. Mm. And uh, so that, that was a really, that was one of the few things that we, <laughs> we get better as we get older. <laughs> yeah, more used to suffering. Yes. Yeah, man, put it uh, on an angle right by your lips. Like That's this? It. So you're, okay. you're eating ice cream. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I, I feel very grateful for this journal and also for this, uh, for, especially for this number and, and also your article on practicing with emotions because for me it was very insightful because, uh, well, I was, uh, I've been educated in, a, in, a, in my family and in my social environment uh, in, in this, that when you have difficult emotions like anger or frustration or fear, you should ignore it or you should yeah, avoid it or neglect it. So the messages that I received in the whole of my life was, uh, you shouldn't feel this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are wrong. <laughs> yes. And I, I always had problems with this because I didn't see that this is the solution. Um, and well, I started to be more mindful, uh, interestingly, through theater. Theater, because in theater I could uh, feel for first time in my life, like allowed to feel what I feel. <laughs> so, um, so I've been uh, dealing with difficult emotions uh, uh, last month, and this was very insightful, really, because it was just. Um, I am practicing just to face difficult emotions, just to face it, not to judge them, and trying to see what is behind them, um, open that space, and and it's so interesting. Um, I mean, just start to see a lot of colors, and finally, from anger, you find uh, many times uh, love, fears, truth, beauty. So... I I really feel uh, really grateful for this because it has been really really interesting for me, and now I, well, my question is about uh, how to. <laughs> I had some experiences this week uh, while dealing with people who is not mindful at all. Um, <laughs> really? So it's oh, those <laughs> in Berkeley. In, <laughs> well. <laughs> it was just well. I just quit my job. I, I was I was doing babysitting in, with with a family who are very quite um, violent verbally, and they don't see that. And I was taking care of a kid who is six years old, and she was taking these uh, behaviors, and I was really sorry about that. Mm. And well, I tried to do something with loving kindness, and finally I I couldn't. It was just too much for me also because it triggers me in these kind of behaviors. Um, so I talked with the parents and I told them I, the truth. With I mean, very kind, but they were freaking out. They were just <laughs> and really violent, and it was a very unpleasant situation. Yeah. Um, in this meditation today, I was thinking about this, um, trying to go forward, no? forward? Uh, forward that and... And well, finally, I I, find, I found that 
that that it's I, I I was truthful, so I could do that. It was my it was my connected with my strength. So also it well helped me to not take it personally, and also to see the fears that that they have, mm-hmm. um, and the difficult that it's to face your own fears, your own emotions, and how easy it is to react in our culture mm-hmm. uh, in this violent uh, way. So I was well. My question is um, how to deal with people who is not mindful in difficult situations. <laughs> we'll be covering that next week. <laughs> when he's I won't not be here. here. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to say? Nothing springs to mind. So um, there is a few things that uh, that that are coming to mind in in, in what you mentioned. First of all, um, you know, you said you came, from, you come from a culture where it's not, uh, it's not the usual thing to feel your feelings or to express it that it's not okay, um, and all the pain that that comes from from that, from cutting yourself off, and when you start getting into practice, this is not. I'll address your your last point uh, in in a moment, but I just want to also acknowledge when you if you are not used to getting in touch with your feelings, and you go on a retreat or you even just start doing practice on your uh, you know in, in in daily life, and you are encouraged to feel your feelings if you haven't been doing it for most of your life, it's um, it's unsettling, to, you know, to to put it mildly at times. And people might say, "Oh my God, I was much better off not feeling all of this. Why would somebody do this?" And it can it can really be humbling, but that that's a good it's a good thing as difficult as it is. But it can be really scary. And you think. Practice, you know, what value is it to feel all of this rage or all of this sadness or all of this fear? And so if you know people who are getting into the practice, who go through that, and and it's like opening up the, the lid off of a whole lot of stuff that's been hidden there, if you if it's held in a purifying process where you're allowing for everything to be felt and what is allowing it is a real wisdom and kindness and compassion that you can access and learn can hold all of that that's where the liberation comes in or part of it and so just to i wanted to name that that unsettled uh first experience of it um and then um with your your question of how to work with people, how to be with people who are who express themselves, who are not very mindful, who are so um, intense, and two things that I that I try to keep in mind. One is first, it can be a doorway to compassion of just imagining what it's like. To be in their mind, 
And especially if that's the only way that they're used to um, communicating, how painful that is. And rather than judgment, you know, we're all products of our conditioning, just like the, the, the people in a culture that doesn't, don't express themselves, that has its ramifications. And the ones who let it all rip all the time, uh, that's sometimes how people stay in contact with each other because love is a little bit scary, um, but that we're all products of our conditioning. And so first to just see, gosh, perhaps if I was in that culture growing up that way and not exposed to mindfulness practices, that could be me. So that's one uh, element. But another is, as the Dalai Lama says, if you're around somebody uh, who's just continuously um, negative and um, and um, unskillful and harmful, and you've done everything you can to change the situation or to bring about uh, a greater uh, practice perspective, and it's still scary and threatening and and not healthy for you, that's the time to find the nearest exit, as he says. Because there's just so much we can do to change the environment. And if it starts to, if that field starts to override our centeredness, then it's important to um, include yourself in that compassion uh, and have particularly compassion for the child who's who's subject to that. And, um, but there's just some things that we can't change and all we can do. I think it was really skillful for you to just say what's true. Yeah. You've done what you could do. You say, you know, I want you to know this is what I see. And if they can hear it, amazing. If they can't, they can't. But who knows, maybe even a seed that you planted that, that six months from now or tomorrow morning in their, in their own uh, privacy gets, gets planted. You've done your job, and then you take care of yourself. So I think you did a really, really good, yeah. good job. I always think it's hard enough to try to change myself, but I definitely can't change other people. Mm-hmm. I can barely change myself. Mm-hmm. But in changing yourself... You can change other people. Change other people. That's, that's the best way to change embodiment. them. Yeah. Time re- yeah. So one other thing uh, about Kevin, besides being a really great uh, Dharma sharer, is um, he's an amazing musician. So I asked him, and he was saying, oh, I've got a couple of Dharma songs uh, these days. Someday I'll play for you. I said, how about tonight? Um, no time like the present. So, uh, yeah, when, when I get to play with Kevin or sing with Kevin, it's like, oh, wow, Eric Clapton, you know, I'm did you backing watch, me up. Or... Did you watch that concert last night? No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, there's some, you should got to watch the Paul McCartney with the yeah. Nirvana guys. Uh, it's awesome. I'm great. Um, thanks, James. Thanks for letting me do this. Um, th- this, we don't have much time. It's a pretty short song, though, but... Um, this uh, comes out of the family retreat that I've been going to with my daughter for the last 10 years or so. And she's 14 now. And so this summer, 
um, we share a room on the family retreat at Spirit Rock, and uh, and uh, she was sleeping in. So I wrote this song. It's called Wake Up. Mm-hmm. It's a reggae song. You have to imagine the reggae drummer, and, and it's got some doo-wop vocals. And shoe up, shoe up, shoe out of water, shoe up, shoe up. Shoo up, shoo up, shoo out of shoo up. Wake up, my darling, don't let the day just slip away. Wake up, my dear, precious time cannot be saved. Now is the moment that we've waited for. Now is the reason. That we both were born It'll never come again You'll never find this precious gem So wake up, wake up Wake up and begin Searching, searching For the reason why Searching, searching Look into my eyes what do you see there? Love is on the rise. Love is the reason. Love is the reason why. Gotta wake up to the earth, to the sea, to the sky, to the fire that's burning, burning to be alive. All the time we've wasted, wasted, wasted All that we could have tasted, tasted, tasted Every day amazes, amazes, amazes Just want you to open up your eyes What do you see now? Shoo up, shoo up Wake up, my darling, don't let the day just slip away. Wake up, my dear, precious time cannot be saved. Now is the moment that we've waited for and now is the reason that we both were born it'll never come again you'll never find it precious to <coughs> can't hit that note <laughs> wake up wake up wake up and begin shawada wada wada wake up wake up Wake up and make him la 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 Wake up, wake up Wake up and begin La la, wake up Wake up, wake up my darling Beautiful ah. Waking up, that's what it's about So, um Thanks, Kevin and Barbara, for putting together such a great issue and uh, coming here and help us reflect on on things. So uh, 
Let's close with a short loving kindness. Just as you take a few breaths and uh, let your heart just open up as wide as the world, as it says, a heart as wide as the world that can hold it all, can hold the sorrows, can hold the joys, can hold the fears, can hold the love. It can hold it all. Awareness can hold it all. And send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I learn to hold it all and not take it personally. May I learn to feel all the love that's in there and and share it well. May I learn to wake up to my true nature and let it shine. And then to extend that to all beings as I want to wake up, may all wake up to their goodness and wisdom and true nature and share their love well. And hold all the emotions and all the feelings with compassion and wisdom. And may our coming here together be of benefit to not only ourselves, but everyone in our lives and ripple out to all beings everywhere. May all find the highest peace and happiness. you <clears throat> thanks kip thanks james <laughs> see you next week and uh, stack the chairs up very mindfully yeah thanks thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate